Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me today is actor, commentator and oh god what now and Bunker mainstay Alex Andrew. Good morning Alex, how are you? Morning Jacob, I'm fine. Good, good, good. So there's a lot of gossip going on this week, isn't there? It's Tory conference in Manchester. It's conference season, so it's all all systems go. Fever pitch is where we're at. So yeah, what's happening over the next few days? What are you looking out for? Well, just about every former prime minister is shooting torpedoes at uh, Sunak. <laughs> and just about every wannabe prime minister is also shooting torpedoes at Sunak. So... Um, I feel as sympathetic towards him as I possibly could, which is not very, I'm afraid. Yeah, it feels a little bit rats in a sack, kind of. I mean, they're all they're torpedoing him, but they're also torpedoing each other, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Liz Truss is holding an event called, I think, the Great British Growth Rally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It really is quite extraordinary because we are exactly a year on from that shambles of a conference that basically marked the beginning of the end for her, which was pretty near the the end of the beginning for her. And a year later, she's popping up going, I was right. (laughs) My plan was brilliant. And then you have Theresa May is going to a sort of conservative environment network fringe event and she's basically blasting Sunak over going back on the net zero pledges and then you have Peter Crudders who is basically there as a Boris Johnson proxy you know he started the conservative democracy organization which is basically the we love Boris club and he's threatening a full-scale revolt and basically telling donors not to give the party money. Now, what's interesting is the common thread in all of those is Pretty Patel. Yeah, Pretty Patel does seem to be a sort of unsavoury character that's coming back in vogue a little bit, isn't she? She seems to be sort of returning a bit more in focus. Well, she's popping up in the Peter Crudders event. She's popping up in the Theresa May event. And she's popping up in the Great British Rally, the Liz Truss event. So she's supporting all of the three main people who are basically shooting at Sunak. Although I did like when she got asked whether Liz Truss could come back and her answer was a pretty firm uh, no, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that'll be an interesting green room later today. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. They are already basically fighting the leadership contest after the next election is lost. There is no other way to describe what's going on. 
Now, a friend of the podcast, Rachel Wehmuth, called it funereal, was how she described it there. So it does seem like they've completely, they've accepted defeat in every way and seem to have, yeah, jumped on a little bit, haven't they? And quite empty, actually, and quite a bad atmosphere from what I hear from all the journalists who are up there. So, I mean, inside the Sunak bunker, they're all very chipper. And because there's been a little bit of movement in one poll, so they're taking that as a very good sign. But I have to say, the conventional wisdom is that polls during conference season are very unreliable. Because basically, each party has a week to showcase itself. There's loads of policies being floated. There's loads of noise going on. And you tend to get quite big variations in the polls. So really, you should be looking at what the polls are doing two weeks or three weeks' time to see if there's been any actual change. James Cleverly was also freelancing. He made a speech on yesterday, Sunday, where he was actually impinging lightly on... Braveman's territory by saying he's ordering British diplomats to talk to foreign officials to help stem the sort of boat crossings. And then he also made a comment that he didn't agree with Braveman over multiculturalism. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Wallace is has written an article today that seems to be a little bit of a leadership pitch. He's saying that he asked Sunak for more money for defence and was refused just before he resigned. It really is yeah. just falling apart at the seams. Well, it's like you almost would think if you were, you know, you don't want that much going on at your conference, do you? You kind of need it to be a little bit more streamlined, don't you? Yeah. For it to, to feel yeah. like a, a party conference, is it? Everyone yeah. is coming together to do something. If you've got that much happening, it's quite and addictive. And the, the, comedy, the comedy value comes along and you've got the London mayoral candidate, Susan Hall, accidentally telling attendees that she'll be London's first female Labour mayor. Um, <laughs> and Greg Hands, the chairman of the Conservative Party, held the drinks event where he stood at the door and was handing people Keir Starmer flip-flops as they came in. Yeah, which is very strange, <laughs> seen as the, the HS2 situation at the moment is something that they can't confirm whatsoever, and then they're trying yes. to act like he's he's spineless. It's just... And yeah, the trains are on a strike, and actually the, the doctor's strike starts today, and... Hunt actually flew up there, and I think Sunak flew up there. It's a shambles, but there is a policy side to it. Yeah. <laughs> so there are some actual <laughs> speeches going on. Um, yeah, what is uh, Hunt saying today? So it's his turn, isn't it? On yeah, Monday? so Jamie Hunt, today's Chancellor Day, traditionally, and he's announcing with great fanfare that uh, minimum wage will rise to £11 from £10.42, um, which is about 5%. So that's below inflation. So the very, very poorest will just become a little bit poorer still. I mean, if anything needs to keep up with inflation, surely it's the minimum wage, because you're already acknowledging that it is the minimum necessary to live on. But there you go. It's rising, just not by very much. He's also announcing that he's going to go after people on benefits that are refusing to work. Again, solving 
problems that don't exist, really. You know, there isn't some great group of millions of people who are, you know, living at large on Western Europe's meanest benefits. There really just isn't. But there you go. He's going to deal with it. So, I mean, I guess if Sunak can appear on television and say that he's scrapping the meat tax and scrapping seven bins and scrapping having to carpool, why shouldn't Hunt make announcements on his imaginary policy <laughs> issues? I mean, yeah. why not? Gillian Keegan, Education Secretary, doing exactly the same. She's saying she's announcing that she will ban mobiles in classrooms. And first of all, Gavin Williamson announced exactly the same thing two years ago in June 2021. And second of all, like I've taken great pains since this policy was leaked yesterday. I have spoken to at least 20 friends of mine with kids in school, and every single one says their school already does that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when I was at school, mobile phones were, were around and we, we weren't allowed to have our mobile phones out in the classroom. But then guess what? We were kids, so occasionally people would get their mobile phones out and then they'd get told off and they'd get them taken off them. That's it. That's just what will happen. How else are you going to have the ban? I have to say the majority of schools, from what I've gathered, actually collect them from kids on their way in and give them back to kids on their way out. I don't know how you go further than that. I don't know how you police it, actually. I don't know how you do it in a way that doesn't turn into a disaster because also kids need to be able to contact their parents in an emergency or if they end up in a dangerous situation or if they need to arrange a ride. So, I mean, it's just nonsense. What else? Oh, Michael Gove, I was rather struck by his media round yesterday. He was putting pressure on Sunak to cut taxes before the next election. Sunak is having none of it. There was also something else that Michael Gove said that I thought was quite extraordinary. He said that Sunak is a change candidate, while Starmer, and this is a quote, represents continuity of the superficial approach that has scarred politics. It just leaves me speechless. Michael Gove is someone who's actually been in a senior cabinet position for 11 and a half of the last 13 years. And he reckons that someone who hasn't been in power in 13 years, a party, actually someone who's never been in power, if you're looking at Starmer, he reckons he's the establishment, but the the party that's been in power for 13 years and the man who was chancellor for two years and has been prime minister for the last one doesn't represent continuity. And that's going to be their electoral strategy, I think. And it it really is quite an extraordinary one. They might get away with it. They certainly have all the pom-pom shaking newspapers on their side pushing that narrative. But it is just an absurd thing to say. Yeah, I mean, if this was one massive reset as well, maybe you could potentially frame it in that sort of way. But when they've had so many reboots in that 13 years as well, so many coming over the last couple of years too, it's quite hard to, you know, if they'd been, if David Cameron had been prime minister for 11 of these years and then there was a switch over or something like that, perhaps you could possibly frame that 
as a massive switch, but when that just simply hasn't happened. Sure, maybe, yeah, maybe if you stand on a hill at sunset, you know, and tilt your head in a particular angle, you might be able to make Sunak a change candidate. But yeah. I still wouldn't understand how you condemn Starmer as the continuity of the superficial approach that has scarred politics. Because what you're saying is that your approach for the last 13 years has been shit. I mean, unless you're talking about a continuity for something that hasn't existed in more than a decade, (laughs) right? But if you're talking about representing continuity of something that's very damaging, I mean, that's you. You've been doing that. With Rishi Sunak then, so with the whole rebranding situation, he's got his speech office this week. What are you looking out for in that? Is it going to be all sort of fantasy land things he's scrapping? Look, Jacob, there are spades in the ground, but I cannot comment on any further speculation than that. (laughs) That was literally his answer on Sunday to everyone asking about HS2. He just kept saying, There are spades in the ground, but I can't comment on further speculation. And Laura Kunzberg, to her credit, actually pulled him up on it and said, you're not a columnist, you know, you're the country's prime minister. This is your decision. I'm asking you whether it will happen or not. And he responded, there are spades in the ground, and I can't comment on further speculation, with exactly the same sentence in exactly the same order. So I think the question of HS2 will persist throughout the week. There are rumours now that he's going to have an emergency cabinet meeting at conference to make a decision on HS2, which is utter bullshit. Obviously, they've already made the decision on HS2. They just wanted to announce it after the conference because they're in Manchester at the moment and it leaked and made things very difficult for them. So what they're going to discuss is, look, guys, this has been an utter disaster, so we U-turn on the U-turn and say we're pressing ahead with it. That's what they're going to discuss. And they might. They might actually U-turn on the U-turn. With the pressure over tax cuts and stuff like that on the fringes, do you think that will, will shape his speech? Is it all going to add pressure on him to maybe have to do something in that realm? I mean, that's the ultimate U-turn, right? Because he was elected on the basis of no easy tax cuts until and unless we bring inflation under control. And inflation under control doesn't just mean halving. It means heading towards its target, right? Because tax cuts are actually inflationary. They're a lot more inflationary than nurses' salaries. Yeah, And that was his platform against Liz Truss's profligacy. He basically launched himself as the sensible one who wasn't going to do tax cuts because we can't afford them at the moment. So that would be the ultimate abandonment of that platform on which he basically marketed himself. Having said that, it wouldn't surprise me in the least, if he buckled under the pressure. Because 
you know, if one thing has become very, very clear in recent months is that Sunak is an incredibly weak, weak, weak person. When it comes to him sort of backtracking and flip-flopping on stuff, climate policy is obviously one of the you know, most egregious things where he's completely just thrown yeah. it out of the window totally. Do you think he could ditch even even more of that platform? I'm sure he will do whatever. I think what we've seen in the last few weeks with this complete willingness to make up stuff, to make up policy, to scrap things that don't exist, what we've seen is, once again, the Tory superpower at work. And the Tory superpower is that they have no shame. They have absolutely no shame. That is their superpower. They will stand there, look deep into the camera, and absolutely lie through their fucking teeth. And they will do that between now and the election. Further into the week, it's uh, it's Labour conference on Sunday as well, as we go into this uh, this little run of gatherings that we're in. Is that going to be easier than usual for them? Just because, I mean... And with everything we've discussed here, basically, they simply have to be not this shit, don't they? And they'll look amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure because the problem, as always, and I had hoped that this was going to get a little bit better because actually a lot of the right-wing press has been quite unhappy with Sunak but they still seem to toe the line. They still seem to put out whatever narrative the government gives to them. And on the flip side, I have absolutely no doubt that the Telegraph, the Mail, the Express, the Sun, they will be trawling fringe events to just find the maddest thing some person has said and splash the next day on the front page Starmer plans to tax puppies um, <laughs> because because that's what they do and that's what will happen. And I absolutely guarantee it now that the coverage from the people you expect it to be negative will be as negative as possible. But um, conference season is basically quite an unlimited access to party political broadcasts and so a lot of people will be able to make speeches directly to the public and we will see how that goes i mean it is very much starmer's big moment a lot of people are saying that his speech needs to make an impact i'm not sure whether he's that kind of speaker but i guess we will see Finally, on the domestic side of things, and we'll do a whistle-stop tour of the world news then. There's also this by-election for Margaret Ferrier's old seat. What should we be looking out for from that vote? How consequential might that be? It is quite an interesting by-election because, again, Labour have been gaining some ground in Scotland. The SNP have, have been fighting a sort of defensive action. That sort of seat is quite contestable. It used to be a Labour seat. And so I guess that will be a measure of how Labour are doing up in Scotland. And it will be very interesting to look at what happens at that election. 
So turning to look at some of the news from around the world, there was a deal struck over the weekend to avert a government shutdown in the US. This is just a sticking plaster though, isn't it, Alex? I mean, can you give me a bit of an oversight of what's going on there and how you know we've dodged a problem, but really there's still plenty of issues going on, aren't there? Yeah, there's a very good bunker daily in this if people do a little search in our back catalogue where someone explained to me this periodic standoff between Congress and the president. So basically, Congress has to approve a new borrowing ceiling every time the previous one is reached. But this is not a budget in the way we understand it. This is basically to pay for commitments already made. And so this is already legislation that has passed, pensions that need to be paid, stuff like that. So this is not new money that needs to go somewhere. This is to approve basically the paying of invoices already incurred, if you think of it in that way. And recently, unfortunately, there's been often a clash over that because when the Republicans have control of one of the houses, they use it to extract concessions from a Democrat president. Um, And this happens again and again. The deal that's been struck now is slightly earlier than I expected. When I spoke to the experts earlier in the year, we thought it was going to drag slightly into the autumn and make it really quite urgent because then you begin to to consider the possibility of America defaulting on its debts, which is just catastrophic. So it's happened earlier, but it is only a stopgap. So it is only a short sort of bridging bill that raises it a little bit and really kicks it into yet another argument next year because they will want that to be a live issue before the next presidential election because they can use it to basically say the Democrats are terrible with money. Look, they can't even pay your pensions. So that's what's going on. Quite significantly, this bridging bill does not include provision for aid to Ukraine. The Democrats have specifically asked for that to be in there, and the Republicans have quite explicitly taken it out. With that, looking at the situation in Ukraine, what's happening there at the moment? And I know there's a a suggestion of UK troops going over there for training. What's the sort of timeline around that? The UK has already done quite a few training sessions, and I think they do them regularly. Ukraine has made progress in the south. You can see that little dent being made, basically, if you look at the map, that might allow them to make a push to the shore so they can basically cut off the Crimean from the land bridge. Expert opinion seems to think it it will be touch and go whether they can do that and depend very, very heavily on the weather. Like, if it's a relatively dry October, they might manage to continue with a push. But if it rains heavily, then that entire area turns into a massive mud bath and basically troops have to entrench and stay where they are until, at the very least, until the ground freezes. So that will be interesting to see what goes on there. Russia seems to be struggling because there are a lot of attacks now on the southern border and 
there are increasingly drone attacks on its command centers. So Russia is having to use its navy for support in that region more and more, which means its navy is is not available to sort of stop grain shipments and things like that. So all of that has an effect. Also very interesting are rumors that Prigozhin's son is trying to take control of the Wagner group. And so that could be a significant development for Putin because obviously Prigozhin having met a a rather sticky and um, suspicious end his son taking control of the Wagner group will be quite quite difficult for Putin, I would imagine. Since we are talking about European defence issues, also something else quite important has happened. So James Cleverly announced yesterday that he would activate a battalion of British soldiers to go to Kosovo to keep the peace in the coming days. This is several hundreds servicemen and women. It's quite extraordinary that he sort of said that in a conference speech rather than announcing it to Parliament. Deployment of UK troops abroad traditionally is a really serious thing that needs to be discussed in the Commons. So That's quite extraordinary, both in the sense that the situation in Kosovo has got so bad that European countries are beginning to send peace troops there, but also because it really fits in a pattern of this government just announcing policy to the press instead of debating it in Parliament. Yeah, well, not even just the government, it's, it's it, the individuals who are kind of wanting to boost their own profile using it in that way too. Finally, uh, you've had an eye on the, the Evergrande situation in China before, haven't you? The sort of the property issues that are going on there. Is that coming to a to a crisis point? And what could it mean for the the economy of China and then the world more widely if that completely tanks? The Evergrande situation has been coming to a crisis point for three years now. Yeah. It is a slow-moving car crash. And what Cindy Yu explained to me, again, there's a really good daily on this, if listeners want to learn more about it, is that the reason it's a slow-moving car crash is because it's a deliberate car crash. So effectively, there was far too much, a far too buoyant uh, supply in property in China while demand had collapsed. And that supply was being funded by a huge debt bubble. And China knew that that situation needed to come to an end. So rather than letting it collapse a la Lehman Brothers, what they've decided to do is to suddenly make the conditions for borrowing around the housing industry much more stringent, the capitalization requirements much more stringent, which would basically poke that bubble and allow it to deflate over time in a slightly more controlled way. So that's what's going on at the moment. You're basically seeing a Lehman Brothers type scenario, but managed. 
so that it's all happening quite slowly over time. I mean, to answer your question, China is hugely important to the global economy when their economy has not enough demand, when their growth is not what the world expects, then everyone's growth projections suffer. And we are seeing that. We are seeing the IMF constantly revise downwards most of the G20 economic growth forecasts. And that is absolutely related to slower growth in China. Alex, thank you for joining me and talking me through all of that this morning. My pleasure. And that brings us to the end of Start Your Week. If you enjoyed the show, please review us wherever you listen. And remember, you can sign up to support us on Patreon. From £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early every day. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast or follow the link in the show notes to find out more. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for listening to The Bunker. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreev. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.